Welcome. I think that uh, this will be one of the most important interviews that we do in quite some time. A lot of the talk about Live Golf and the Aramco series on the Ladies European Tour and the conversation seems to be shifting to the wrong things in my opinion at this point and that's why I'm really thrilled to welcome in our guest today. Lena Alhathlul, thank you so much for your time. Your sister Lu Zhang, who spent 1,001 days in a Saudi prison. And I wanted to connect with you and I appreciate you doing this because you're brave. I've read so much about your story, your sister's story, your background. But this conversation with Live Golf, this conversation with Aramco, it's focused on money, it's focused on sports. You bring a human aspect to it. And so I wanna dive into your story. I wanna start though, because you grew up in Saudi. What was it like for a young girl growing up in Saudi Arabia? Um, that's a very difficult question because when we're there, we don't really see, you know, we don't really feel the difference. It's once we know what freedom is that we are actually, um, we realize the kind of prison that it is. So actually in Saudi Arabia, um, I, I was living there when women were not allowed to drive yet. Um, so I was always with, um, with a driver, um, whether a male re relative or um uh, a stranger. So I was always with a man, um, which is always also sometimes dangerous to be um, with strangers in a car. Um, the second thing is that uh, there's the male guardianship system. So for every decision, even my mom had to have the consent of my father for, you know, even for traveling. I mean, I remember my father being overwhelmed with all these procedures because he had to sign and give his consent for us to only go on vacation because we're women. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the everything. I mean, I, I was very lucky, to be honest, to have this family where they would give their consent to everything. They would allow me to play sports. They would... Um, let me, you know, have classes like child, uh, children everywhere in the world. But um, I would, I mean, I was seeing the unfortunate uh, kids, you know, women who were not as lucky as I was and weren't privileged as I was to have this, uh, these kind of male relatives who uh, were open enough to allow the women to, to, yeah, to swim, to go to classes, to even study. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, heartbreaking to see that I was lucky and it's, we needed luck to just have a normal life, basically. So you said you didn't really understand what it was like until you experienced freedom. What was the difference once you did experience that? Well, the difference is that um, you don't know how powerful you can be, actually. You know, you just, um, I mean, for example, my sister, I think that she realized that from a very young age that she can bring change. I, I honestly, I wasn't as brave and luck, or as open as her to realize that before um, experiencing it. Uh, you know, once you're here, um, you don't have to have the consent of anyone to study, uh, to work. Um, you, you even realize that uh, it's also responsibilities that you that are imposed upon you, and this is very empowering. I would say uh, this is something that you do not have back there. Even for you know custody, women don't have um, their choice for custody over their children. Um, I mean, I I was also here in um, in Europe when uh, my sister was first arrested, and even for her release. 
um, which was very shocking for me to um, to be informed about that, is that for her release, she had to have the consent of a male relative to leave prison. So, yeah, I really, you know, I started realizing all of that once uh, my sister really was active and once I was uh, abroad uh, doing my studies. So reading on your sister's story, and again, I mentioned 1,001 days in a Saudi prison, and she was listed as a terrorist because she was an activist, a campaigner for women to have the right to drive for uh, the release of the guardianship system. You have talked in detail, as she has, about what she went through during those 1,001 days, subject to electric shock therapy, uh, waterboarding, sexual abuse, floggings. That day, let's go back to March of, of 2018, and, and you find out that your sister has been taken into house custody, correct? That happened for a couple months before prison. What was your reaction to it? I'll try to be brief. Um, but so basically, my sister uh, was an activist. She had been imprisoned a first time in 2014 for trying to drive in Saudi Arabia. And because she was imprisoned in, in what is called a care house, so basically in Saudi Arabia, there, there is what's called a care house. It is basically prisons for women who are disobedient or who um, are under 30 and um, uh, have committed a real crime. So when you're a woman in Saudi Arabia and your male guardian considers that whatever behavior you have can be uh, considered as be disobedient him, you can be imprisoned in this care house and leave it only with the consent of a male guardian. So when Lu Jain uh, tried to drive in 2014, she was imprisoned in that uh, care house. And so when she went out of it, she realized that the problem actually is not only about driving in Saudi, it's about the, the, the whole guardianship system that imprisoned, imprisons women uh, based on the arbitrary um, opinion of a male cons who considers a woman to be disobedient. So once she went out of prison, she continued her activism, but she broadened it. And she, she was um, trying to dismantle the guardianship system, which is many laws uh, that um, imprisons or you know, submits women to, to a man. And I think that's really the moment where it got a bit very stress, um, fr frustrating for the authorities that she's not only about driving, she's also about, you know, uh, being uh, free, basically, from A to Z. And so in uh, February 2018, she was in, um, in, uh, in Geneva, the Human Rights Council, and she was observing uh, the official um, Saudi um, Saudi uh, delegation that was talking about uh, the, the improvements of women's rights in Saudi Arabia. And she was tweeting live about it, countering uh, the, their, um, their narrative, basically. And so she got back to the Middle East and she used to live in the UAE in the Emirates back then. And uh, when she went back to the UAE, she was kidnapped. So she was driving her car from uh, Dubai to Abu Dhabi. She was kidnapped in the middle of the highway, in the middle of the day. She was put in a private plane. She was brought back to Saudi against her will. And in Saudi Arabia, she was imprisoned for a couple of days. Uh, and then she was released and put on a travel ban. So she couldn't leave Saudi. And then in May 2018, that's when they broke into her, her house. But maybe an important um, uh, point is that 
before they broke into her house, uh, when she was this period where she was under um, uh, on a travel ban, the royal court had called her saying that they're about to um, to lift the driving ban. And they're about to let a woman drive, but she is not supposed to comment on it. She's not supposed to tweet about it and not even applaud the decision, uh, just to stay silent. What, of course, uh, she, she had to agree on. I mean, she was on a travel ban. Um, there, there has been so many, there had been so many um, arrests, wave arrests uh, on, on intellectuals, academics, royals before her. So she said, okay, the atmosphere is a bit uh, tense now. I, I will, of course, you know, do whatever you ask me to do. But uh, nevertheless, they broke into her house. They took Lujane. She was forcibly disappeared um, for uh, less than a month. Um, and uh, then she called and she said that she uh, was in a hotel. And honestly, we felt relieved. We thought that it was actually an, a hotel back then. Um, and then later on, um, you know, she only had calls. And then uh, the, the first visit started when she was brought back to the official prison. And that's when we found out about what this hotel was. Actually, it was um, a torture facility. I can't imagine how painful it is for you to talk about it. I read that your parents actually saw her. And of course, the Saudis did not want this out. They, they wanted to restrict any kind of information that she indeed was being tortured. But your parents saw it firsthand. They saw her body. They saw the physical shape that she was in. How has she described that to you? Um, I'm sorry. It's always very difficult. It's been years, but it's always the same. So basically, um, that torture facility, uh, it's, um, it's a hotel or a palace, and they would, uh, the, the men would be sitting on couches uh, with one detainee in the middle who would be um, on a chair. And of course, you know, and um, the important also um, note is that one of the men who was imposing all this torture is uh, the the right-hand man of the crown prince, um, Saud al-Ghahtani, who's also involved in the case of Khashoggi, in the killing of Khashoggi, and who's involved in also the Twitter spies. Um, yani he's the one who's, um, who had led the, the campaign to have spies in Twitter um, to arrest Saudis, basically. So he is really the core of the problem, and he's still uh, very active, even though it's behind the scenes. But yes, so Lujain was sitting in the middle of this room and they would come and, you know, sexually uh, uh, harass her. They would uh, insult her. And then, of course, it gets more and more. They beat her. They electrocute her. Um, they waterboarded her. Um, you know, and uh, when the, the torture session was over, because, you know, the... Um, the order, and that comes from, I think, Human Rights Watch, we read this later, the order was not to kill them. So when they, they were about to, to faint, they would stop and bring them back to, to, their, um, to their rooms. And at night, of course, they also were depriving uh, Lujain and the others of sleep. They would come and just, you know, scare them. Um, make, make sure that they, they're really scared, uh, just shaking them up, um, you know, uh, uh, threatening them with another uh, torture session. Um, 
and um, and yes, this is what this was the case for uh, approximately uh, the the three first months. How did her release come about? This is uh, <laughs> how did her release come about? So you know, I, I think it's also important to understand um, how Saudi authorities deal with activists now. Um, so basically, when Lujain was arrested, there was a huge defamation campaign on on, on social media and on um, Saudi outlets on paper, where her face and the other activists' face were uh, stamped with traitor. And they were saying that they were traitors because they were communicating with enemy states. And at the very beginning, we didn't know what they meant. We didn't know, you know, who they were referring to. But what we used to see on social media is that the, the bots or the accounts that are close to the government, they used to say that she was um, uh, an agent of Qatar. And uh, back then, uh, Saudi and Qatar were not uh, friends. They, they had a, a diplomatic crisis. And anyway, so, okay, uh, agent of Qatar, give us uh, some evidence, nothing came. Um, and even MBS, the crown prince, uh, when he had an interview with Bloomberg back in 2018, when they, they asked him what are the charges of Lujain, he said that she is uh, an agent and that he has videos that he can show the day after the interview. Nothing came. And then a year later, the trial starts. The trial starts and what we see that the charges, surprisingly, mention her contact with the UK, with the Netherlands, with the EU, with Amnesty International, with Human Rights Watch. So nothing about Qatar, nothing about a real enemy, you know, mm-hmm. Not, nothing about Iran or whatever. And so we question ourselves, we, see, we say, okay, so this new reformer who is praised by the West actually considers them as enemies. And because we made that public, because you know the, the atmosphere of fear makes it that no one talks in Saudi Arabia anymore. No one had t- dared even to say that their relative was imprisoned. And when we decided to, to publish the charges to say, look, this is what Lujain is accused of. She's literally accused of her activism. I think there, ha- there has been some diplomatic, um, you know, um, advocacy and UK was removed. So they left Lujain being a traitor because she's in contact with the EU and the Netherlands and Amnesty, of course, and Human Rights Watch. And also because she uh, was at the, at the UN, at the Human Rights Council of the UN. Um, so th- these are the charges. And I mean, we have posted everything on our website. Everything is translated. So for whoever is um, interested, the website is lujainalhadlul.org. Uh, and there is the a page uh, that has all the, the trial. So the Lujain's defense is to say that all the charges that she's accused of, nothing is a crime based on even Saudi law, on international law and also in Saudi law. But she was still condemned, um, sentenced to five years um, and eight months, but with a, with a probation. Uh, and that probation makes it that what, whatever you know she does could be considered as a crime and she can get an, imprisoned anytime. And she's also not allowed to speak to journalists. She's not allowed uh, to speak about her experience in prison. And she has a five-year travel ban. And they actually wanted or gave her the option 
to to be released sooner, correct? They wanted her to say initially in a statement that she wasn't beaten, she wasn't tortured, and then they wanted her to go on camera. Of all the admirable things that your sister did, in my opinion, that was one of the most because she wanted that story out there. How did she make that decision? I mean, you know, Lujain is someone who's really selfless. Everything she does, she does it for the generations to come. She never really thinks about herself first. And I think that when she decided not to uh, to do this and to or to 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 deny the torture she has been subjected to, she thought about the other activists as well. Because if she denies it, then they will make it uh, a denial for everyone, and for they they can continue with other you know other people arrest them, torture them, and. Um, Whenever if, if they complain about it, you know, they, they will have Lujain as an evidence to say, no, look, uh, she she denied it. So you're all liars. So I think it was all it's, it was about the others and making sure that, you know, um, it, it cannot be. Um, yeah, it cannot it could be experienced by other activists uh, again. And she, she wanted really to, to have some kind of accountability to what is happening. And of course, they keep denying the, the, the torture. Good for her. What's she doing now? So now she um, is allowed to work. Uh, not all the activists who have been released are allowed to work, but I think because of her profile, it would be too difficult for them to deprive her of, of work. Um, but the thing is, uh, you know, they target people around her. So the center she she works for, uh, the, the president of the center has been forcibly disappeared just after she started working. Um, and we see, yeah, of course, you know, she, she's a bit isolated, I would say, because they don't want people, you know, they, it's it's a, an official charge, basically, to be in contact with Lujain. So it's a, it's a very, um, it, she lives in constant fear, uh, but she's still very strong. Reading the story on your sister was difficult enough. And I've read a lot of the articles that you've posted on Twitter, and it, it, it almost becomes more difficult because you're very open and you say it really eloquently that that over here in the West, we think that that MBS is progressive. He tries to display those those sorts of things. You recently posted an article and it's interesting because this whole guardianship issue is still ongoing. You talked about women who who are in these sort of hideaways, for lack of a better word, and if they report rape, they report incest, they report physical abuse, that they are actually punished and their abusers have control over them. That is still the guardianship system. How much is the West being fooled by the propaganda that MBS is trying to spread? Well, I think, uh, Lisa, to be honest, um, there is the ones who are being fooled are just um, turning a blind eye on, on what is happening. There is too much evidence of who he is and what Saudi Arabia is now. I mean, I, I can understand that at the very beginning when he was, uh, you know, um, named crown prince. And, you know, he had all this narrative about uh, women's rights, uh, women driving, um, opening up uh, the country to uh, foreign business. I can understand. But after a couple of years, when the murder of Khashoggi, with the murder of Khashoggi, with the war in Yemen, with the diplomatic crisis in, in Qatar, with the arrest of all the activists and the and the torture of women in prisons, uh, with the arrest and imprisonment of the um, prime minister of a sovereign sovereign country that is Lebanon. I mean, there are too much evidence to say that we can believe 
um, that he is open and uh, he's a real reformer. I think that now the people who still continue to have this narrative are j- just too interested. They are um, um, consciously turning a blind eye to what is happening in the country. And unfortunately, right now, a lot of that is happening with golf. I want to turn our attention to that. In October 2020, you wrote a very powerful letter. And this is how I first got introduced to you because I read the letter and it's the entire letter is just absolutely beautiful because it, it spells out exactly why you were pleading with the ladies European tour players not to participate in the Aramco series. It is something that I'm passionate about. We're watching this live golf scene and it involves men and, and hundreds of millions of dollars that fits absolutely no business model. But the ladies European tour has actually forced this upon these players. And so saying no to certain tournaments is really difficult if they want to continue their livelihoods. How did you find out about this and, and what was behind the plea that you put out in the letter? Well, I've you know since um, since Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been using the strategy of uh, you know sports washing, I've been really interested in that. Um, and I think that again, I do not want to be um, unfair with the Saudi people. I don't want the, them to be you know sanctioned twice. You know, I don't want them to be deprived of sports. What I'm saying is that um, the the crown prince is using, um, you know, public figures to continue and to hide his repression inside of the country. The the very evidence of that is that no one who is going to Saudi Arabia can say anything about what they know in the country. So this is. Of, of the very evidence of them being used as a window dressing of what is happening inside of the country. Just to be clear, so Crown Prince Hamad bin Salman comes. He does a coup against, I'm sorry to be political, but it is a bit. So he does a coup against, uh, you know, uh, the, the one who was supposed to be Crown Prince. He imprisons all the people from the royal family who are not accepting him. And um, to basically to gain legitimacy because he doesn't have any within the royal family and within the Saudi people who didn't choose him, he needs the Western world to accept him. And he knows how to get the Western world to accept him is by having this narrative of um, of accepting women, of, you know, uh, not accepting women, but reforming the laws to, for women and opening the, the, the country to concerts and sports. And concerts and sports is the very... Um, topic or you know yeah the, the very field by which he can show himself as a, as a reformer and this is why i think that uh, whoever is involved in sports uh, western people who are involved in sports in saudi arabia either they go and they speak about what is going on uh, because they know that you know just for them to see if they see one person criticizing the crown prince or whatever is happening. If they see one person even naming my sister, it's impossible. We are in an absolute police state where people have been silenced, where no one speaks and whoever speaks is imprisoned and disappeared. So, you know, the, the... the, um, the this idea of Saudi Arabia opening up because there is sports, it's not true. It is true that you know women now can play 
more sports, but it doesn't mean that they're more free. Whoever their male guardian is can, you know, can do whatever he was doing before MBS. And even worse than this is that, you know, whoever speaks is imprisoned. So for us, you know, having um, these kind of tournaments in Saudi Arabia not only, you know, uh, hides the abuses, but the, it enables them because it allows MBS to be even more powerful and show himself as a reformer and, you know, the the man of the situation who is changing things. Um, so, yeah, this is why my message was clear. You know, it, there is a responsibility because these violations are enabled with sports, with concerts, with social reforms. One thing that is that is difficult for me and listening to your story, reading about your sister's story makes it even more difficult. I, I've been talking about this, this whole topic and I expect that it will get worse. And this is why I wanted to have you on. I hope that players hear this, especially the female players. There are women on the LPGA tour who wear a golf Saudi logo, a golf Saudi logo. And you're explaining how this repressive regime under MBS has not only continued, but in a sense is getting worse because of the whole facade that he's trying to do. What would your message be, Lena, to those women who have that logo or are thinking about wearing the logo and accepting this kind of money? My message is clear. I think that uh, we should remember that Saudi Arabia is not MBS. And wearing this logo only represents MBS. So for them to be fair, they should be speaking about my sister, Lujain. They should be speaking about all the women rights activists who are either still in prison or under a travel ban. They should be talking about the male guardianship system. They should be talking about these care homes. Otherwise, what they're, they're being used, and I know um, they do not like to, be, to hear this, but they are being complicit to what is happening they are enabling this repression so just to be fair with um, and constant with their message because i guess that they wear this in solidarity you know they think that i think m most of them think that maybe they're doing a good thing that you know they they're maybe trying to make uh, the country improve that they're br bridging uh, that they're yeah they're linking uh, continents and you know that uh, sports is uh, is is a door to 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 more solidarity to more to improvements but this is not the case in Saudi so just for their um, you know for for their message to be fair I think that um, they have a duty to speak about women's rights activists to speak about women's rights in Saudi Arabia and also to make sure that when they go there um, to 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 feel the real atmosphere and to see that actually it is a dictatorship where no one can speak. Does this give MBS more power? And if so, how dangerous is that? Absolutely. Uh, he wouldn't have any power without this soft power, actually. Uh, this is all he has now for his own legitimacy because no, no one wants him. Um, so, of course, it does give him more legitimacy. It does empower him. It does embolden him. And it does um, increase the repression inside the country. And I must say something as well is that MBS... And again, we're being political, but he's not only, you know, dangerous for the, 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 the Saudi people. I mean, we've seen it in so many cases that, you know, the transnational repression that uh, he is uh, at the core of is um, 
is very dangerous. And I don't think we want to enable and embolden uh, someone like MBS who maybe will become a new Bashar al-Assad who, can, who won't be stopped in a 15 years time. So I think that it's our duty now to act and not to, to be short-sighted in, in what we, we do. Lena, Greg Norman recently made a ridiculous statement and they were talking about the situation for women in Saudi. He said, well, I've been there and I've seen women in restaurants. Lee Westwood, who is a male golfer and committed to this Live Golf Tour, actually claimed that things are getting better for women in Saudi. How do you react to that, knowing what is taking place today, knowing the stories of these these imprisoned camps and where women are currently being held? Because there doesn't seem to be any sort of progress. In fact, it, it seems to be taking a, sort of a backwards pedal since MBS tried to claim that this guardianship system was gone. Well, what I can say is that I don't think uh, he's in the right place to, to, to say what the situation of women is in Saudi Arabia. I think that it's up to Saudi women to choose what they want. And we have seen that when Saudi women try to choose what they want, they get tortured in prisons. Um, so being in a restaurant and seeing women um, eating, I don't think it's a sign of, of the country opening up. I think that, you know, the the... The first thing to do is maybe to speak to women who have, who are experiencing uh, the repression in Saudi Arabia, and to to see with them um, whether they they're um, they're satisfied with the with the reforms or not. And I think that it might be impossible to get anyone who might criticize the reform, so-called reforms, because of uh, the the repression inside of the country. So. Um, Maybe if he can speak to Lujain or to the women's rights activists who have been released, which he won't because they're not allowed to speak to anyone, then he can have a real idea of uh, of what is really going on and what you know women uh, women's rights looks like in, in Saudi uh, today. What's the future for women under MBS? The future of women in, under MBS is, is if they applaud him. And if they are they they don't say um, that they they, they they don't agree with uh, what is going on, uh, they might be okay. But um, if someone as brave as Lujain speaks, then uh, the future would would be torture and maybe death sometimes. I just want I want to finish with this these these last couple of questions. How concerned are you for your sister? Not just now, but. But looking ahead, she seems to be a born activist. She seems to be outspoken in the most wonderful way. Obviously, there still has to be concern for you and your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Lisa, the the travel ban, I mean, which country (laughs) sanctions you with a travel ban where you cannot leave the country? Usually they just want you to leave the country. They don't want you to come back. It's because they know that it's hell inside the inside of the country. They know that keeping you inside is a kind of, of torture. So of course, I'm super concerned for my sister. You know, she has been harassed and intimidated in an unprecedented level since she since her release. 
Um, even, you know, she has been targeted with Pegasus. Her phone is always hacked. They want to show her that, you know, she, they, she, she is being followed, that whatever she does, she will get imprisoned. And again, whenever MBS is empowered or re-empowered or rehabilitated, she most probably will be in prison. No, it's because there has been international pressure that he had to concede this, at least. Uh, once, you know, he will be, a re if, if he ever gets rehabilitated, the fate of Lujaina will be the one of 2018. Uh, I have no doubt of that. What about your own safety? Do you ever worry about speaking out or do you worry about you speaking out and any impact that it might have on Lujaina? One thing I'm sure of is that if I speak, uh, speaking out will always save Lujain, uh, because it's silence now it has been the norm. And, um, you know, without me speaking, people would believe MBS instead. So I, I don't have this luxury of choosing. Um, if I fear for my safety, to be honest, I live in Belgium. I'm in Europe. Um, I am quite okay, but what I, we've seen recently with the transnational repression, with you know the Tiger Squad that they've sent to Canada trying to uh, to kidnap um, dissidents, I think that we're not safe anywhere, especially if you know uh, allies or governments um, are not as loud or as vocal as they should be against MBS's um, violations. So I would say I'm I'm safe, but we never know. Lena, I hope that I hope that you keep speaking out. And I hope that at one point your sister gets to speak louder because the world needs voices like yours. We need voices like hers. And I suspect that all of this whitewashing and sports washing with MBS is just beginning, unfortunately. I hope that the golf world wakes up because it has been a difficult thing to watch. But your letter, again, I want to keep sharing it, especially in the golf world and especially with the females in the sport, because it's powerful and it matters and it shows what's important. Lena, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. And uh, it really is an honor to have met you. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for having me.